Hello and welcome to the weekly message podcast from Crozet United Methodist Church in Crozet, Virginia. We invite you to join us in person any Sunday for our contemporary service at 9.30 a.m. or for a more traditional service at 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org for further information. We hope you enjoy this week's message from Crozet UMC. So as we continue our summer worship series about unrealistic expectations, the things that are kind of foisted upon Christians and Christianity, sometimes from within, we're going to be talking today about whether or not Christians can believe in science. Are we able to have a functional, healthy relationship between our faith and scientific thought and process and the fruits of science? Are we able to do that? And for some of us, the answer is, duh, yeah. But for some of us, we may have come from a different background that has said other things. And so we struggle with this. And there is certainly a loud voice within American Christianity that talks about how they are they are absolutely not allowed to be together. They have irreconcilable differences that they cannot be joined together, and that to do so is to actually rely more on science and less on faith, which is an abomination. And so we have to go, where did this mindset come from? How did this come into existence? And as close as we within clergydom can trace it, that at some point people became very fearful that if you ask too many questions, that what you're actually doing is expressing a disbelief or an unfaithfulness. If you ask questions, then you're not actually taking things by faith, which is intriguing because if I'm to go through the scriptures and take out all the questions, we're going to have a really thin Bible. In fact, if we just go to the apostles and I start removing their questions, you're going to find that they have been rendered mute. The apostles spend almost all of their time saying, well, how, Jesus? What does that look like? What are you talking about? I don't understand what you mean here. What are you saying? And then they have more practical things like, what do you mean you want us to feed them? And what does that look like? And where are you going? How do we know how to get there? And which one of us gets to sit next to you in the pretty place? They ask questions constantly. And Jesus never says, stop asking questions. Instead, Jesus spends an intriguing amount of time answering their questions, hearing them and engaging them, and sometimes hearing their question and trying to answer what is really at the root of their questioning. Being an active listener and paying careful attention to what it is that people are trying to get by asking questions. In some cases, though, it's clarification. In some cases, it's really just an interaction. But there is always this yearning to know. And of course we yearn to know. We are people that were created in the divine image. And scripture tells us time and time again that God is all-knowing. That God knows things about us that we don't even want to acknowledge about ourselves. God knows things about us that no other living being knows. Because we are afraid to confess them, to talk about it, to tell, to claim it. And yet God knows these things because God is able to know. It is an incredible attribute of our God. Omniscience all-knowing. And yet we have this tension where some places in Christianity, people seem to say, you're not supposed to ask. You're not supposed to ask questions. Of course you're supposed to ask questions. Of course God wants you to be engaged. Somebody who's asking questions is paying attention. Someone who's asking questions wants to know more. They want to be engaged with you. 
And that's a beautiful thing, and I believe that God does want us to be engaged. One of the most beautiful things about United Methodism and the Wesleyan tradition from which we come is that we are, inqui- we are required to ask questions. We can't engage in that discipline of theological reflection if we're not willing to ask questions. Who am I? What would you have me do, Lord? Where would you have me go? How should I use my resources and my finances? Who do you want me to be? What do I need to set aside in order to be liberated and free to be the disciple that you asked me to be? These are all critical questions that we should be asking ourselves. And in the Methodist tradition, we have this understanding that there are four things that we use to ask and guide our questioning so that we can come at a properly discerned answer. And that would be first the foundation of Scripture, then tradition, both our tradition as Methodist and the Wesley uh, tradition, but also the greater tradition of Christianity, all the way back to the apostles and certainly the traditions that are not only outlined in Scripture, but are outlined in the Christian histories outside of Scripture. We are also a people who are empowered to use our experience. What a lovely gift to be able to recognize that your personal experience in the world, what you have seen and heard, what you have encountered in your being and in your emotions and in your mind, that those sorts of things are relevant to your understanding of who you are and who God is and what God would you have you do. It's a beautiful thing for us to recognize that we have been empowered to use our voice, our history, and our experiences as individual Christians, but also collectively as communities of faith, in order to more fully know God and know who we should be in response to that. And the last thing, experience, tradition, and scripture, the last is reason. John Wesley recognized that our minds are a gift from God and that we should use our minds. God didn't give us this ability, this capacity to think and wonder and ponder, as the scriptures put it, and expect us not to use it. If God didn't want us to think, then God would have created us lobotomized. But instead, God encourages us to think, has given us space and capacity within our brain for our brains to grow, for our thoughts to be coalesced and and to, to be condensed and purified and spoken and enacted. God wants us to think. God wants us to think about who God is and what God has done. God wants us to ponder the wonders of creation that's repeated consistently throughout scripture. So why would it be bad to ask questions? Now I'm sure you've grown up in somewhere within your background and especially if you grew up in the church somebody said don't ask questions. Why are you asking questions? Nobody wants to hear your questions. Don't ask questions. And I know this because I constantly hear from people I have a question, or this is a stupid question. No, it's not. The stupid question is the one that goes unasked, right? We want to hear the questions. You can't grow in your knowledge if you don't ask the questions because those of us who might know the answer can't give it to you because we are not omniscient, and we can't read your mind. But we should ask questions of one another. We should ask, how is it with your spirit today? How are you doing? How can I help you? What is it that I can do to grow in my faith? And what can we do together to bring honor and glory to Jesus Christ? These are questions. And they require us to use our minds to discern the answers. It's a beautiful thing. And here in Job, it's not often that we open the book of Job and there isn't like some immediate groaning, so well done. But when you open the book of Job, we've jumped in well into the 20th chapter. And as we're here into this chapter... What you don't know, perhaps, is that the entire thing started because Job is unjustly suffering. 
According to the scripture, he is a good man, an honorable man. Even if he should mess up, he immediately uses uh, the gifts of sacrifice and, and reconciliation in order to be reconciled to God and those he hurts. And God even says, Job is amazing. So why is Job suffering? Job is suffering because unbeknownst to Job, there is a little discussion going on in the heavens about whether Job is a good person because that's who Job is and so God blesses Job. Or is Job a good person because God blesses Job and so therefore Job is just continuing to be good to get the blessings? It's a little nuanced. And as this is playing out, Job is in incredible suffering. All of his children, all of his livestock, all of his servants, all of his earthly wealth and his family have been stripped of him with the exception of his very snarky wife. And he has even lost his physical health. And as he is laying out just languishing and in such physical pain, some of his friends show up to help. And it says that for days they simply sit in silence and they mourn with him a ministry of presence. And then they do what a lot of us find ourselves doing. They get uncomfortable in that silence and they have to do the speaking. And then they start talking. And they are offering in Job the wisdom tradition. The wisdom tradition is encased in multiple books within the Old Testament and it debates why it is that some people suffer. Are they suffering because they are sinful and therefore suffering is the outpouring of their personal sin? Are they suffering because someone else within their sphere of life has caused them to suffer? Are they suffering because this is God's will, God's test? Why are we suffering? Where does suffering come from? And how do we avoid it? And so the tradition was that if you were suffering, it's because you were a sinner. And that's why that's happening to you. And if you were in right relationship with God, then you would be blessed and you wouldn't suffer. There would be no pain and suffering because God likes you, and so you're blessed. And so as the friends are starting to offer this critique, Job says, no, 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 I have done nothing wrong here. I have been righteous. I have done what God has asked. So your explanations do not resonate with me. I don't agree with what you're saying. And as we pick up here, Job has just had back and forth banter with one of the friends, and he says, you don't seem to understand just how wise God is. Let me give you an example of just how brilliant our God is, says Job. And he starts to extol the virtues of God's intelligence by looking at creation. He says things like, do you not realize that the shades, the, the depths of the earth, they tremble. They can shake the waters and all of the creatures within the oceans. We would call this earthquakes. We now understand that because of geography and plate tectonics that there are pieces underneath the surface of the earth that are in motion and depending on their motion and how they grind together or come together it creates ripple effects called earthquakes and we study this and we try to gain insight through science so that you know we might not be able to stop it but can we anticipate it can we negate the pain and suffering that happens from this natural disaster or in the theological sense can we help to provide relief from a natural evil that kills people what can we do because of our rational minds and the gift of science? What can we do with this? And recognizing that not only does it happen on the earth, but it actually happens underneath the seas and the oceans and the water. That it happens there too. And that they are all affected by this. It says in verse 6, Sheol is naked before God and Abaddon has no covering. Sheol was the biblical place of the dead and Abaddon was the entrance into, into death. And it says that even there God is able to see that there is nothing that is beyond God's view. That God can see people whether they are alive or whether they are dead that God is able to look at all places of the earth, and they understood that the land of the dead was underneath the ground. That's why you bury your dead. And this is how they ordered their life, and Job proclaims that even God is there. 
says he stretches out Zaphon, which was the mountainside, stretches the mountains out over the void and hangs the earth on nothing. Let's take a moment and appreciate that out of all the scriptures, the story, not the actual writing of it, but the oral retelling of the book of Job is probably the oldest story in the Bible. For this to be one of the oldest stories, and in this story to recognize that they understood that the earth is suspended in nothingness. Countless religions will come after the religion of the ancient Israelites, and they will place the earth on a pedestal, literally. Whether it's the back of a sea turtle in some Polynesian faiths, or whether it's on the back of a giant man named Atlas in Greco-Roman religion, they seem to think that it's impossible for the earth to be suspended in nothingness. And yet through science and technology, as we have been able to launch ourselves up into space and gain insight from perspectives and satellites and other technology, can we not now confirm that the earth is suspended in nothingness? It's incredible that they seem to understand that. It's one of those moments where we're like, oh my gosh, they knew that back then? And you know how they knew that? God. They knew things. It says, that he binds up the waters in thick clouds. They understood that water comes from the clouds. They may not have understood evaporation and condensation and precipitation, but they understood that somehow, someway, water is coming from the clouds. And yet, they marveled that the cloud is not torn open by them, that water can come forth from the clouds and they are not destroyed, they are rejuvenated, that there's some kind of cycle here. They recognize this. It takes us many years in science to be able to replicate this and explain it. And yet they seem to know because God has shared them, with them this insight. It says that he covers the face of the moon and spreads over it his cloud. That the moon is not killed and reborn as some religions would have said. That when the moon goes into obscurity and you can no longer see it, it's not that the moon is dead and then is resurrected the next night, but that instead that it is covered, that it is hidden from our sight. It has taken us through astronomy and, and physics to understand that what actually happens is the rotation of the earth and our trip around the sun helps to either shade or illuminate the moon. And that we can see it at times, we can see it at the night, but yet during the month that there are times where it is either waxing or waning or new or full. And they recognize this. said so he describes a cloud on the face of the waters. And that he sets a boundary between the light and the darkness, that God seems to understand that there is a circle and that the earth is round. Sometimes we still debate this. And yet here it is in the book of Job, described in a circle. And you might think to yourself, how do they know all that? My suspicion is that somebody was asking. Well, now you can sit outside on your front porch all day and start asking God questions, and God may or may not answer. But God has given us the means by which to ask the questions. God says to us, ask and you shall receive. But we often limit what that means. We think to ourselves, I have to ask for my daily bread or I ask for forgiveness. You know, I ask for the means to do something or the strength to get through something. But what if God is saying, ask me your question and you shall receive wisdom. Ask me what you yearn to know and I will illuminate for you the path of wisdom. Part of the wisdom tradition is the book of Proverbs. And in the book of Proverbs, there's all kinds of fun, crazy stuff. I'll tell you right now, there are quite a few verses that say that the most glorious thing about you is your gray hair. You might want to learn some of those. I'm working on it. It also says in there, there's this great retelling, a personification of wisdom and lady wisdom. 
And she says in her story that I was there with God at creation, that the two of us together worked to bring forth life in all of the creation of the world, that it is only through wisdom that God created. Now, it has taken in my lifetime for us to really articulate in the scientific world the concept of intelligent design. I would submit to you that the most intelligent designer in all of the universe is our God. And that God has done incredible things. Those of you who have ever studied the human body and biology and physiology understand that this is a complicated thing. Multiple systems running all the time. And the glory of it is that we don't have to think about it. We don't have to tell our heart to pump. We don't have to tell our lungs to bring forth oxygen. We don't have to do so many things because our body is seamlessly made. I think the scriptures say wondrously and fearfully made. It's amazing how much science is already a part of our world and our religion. So instead of looking at it like it's an enemy, is God not redeeming for us our rational mind, our inquisitiveness, our desire to know, and giving us insight so that therefore we can appreciate and have gratitude? That's what it's about. We are given the opportunity within Christianity, all in our own ways, to appreciate things. I am not a scientist. I am not of scientific mind. In fact, I'm a triple humanities major. So when people start talking science to me, I'm like, ooh. But yet there's a place for all of us in the conversation. People look at the flowers that God has created that are cited so many times in Scripture, and we sang about today the whiteness of the lily, a symbol of resurrection. People look at the flowers, and some people say, I am so moved by this flower. I just want to smell it. I want to, I want to have the image of it. I just want to bask in the presence of this glorious creation. And there is a place for them. There are other people that say, I marvel at the fact that this flower will regenerate, and I want to know how it does that. They want to get into the science and the biology of this flora. How does this work? How does it photosynthesize? Why is this one yellow and this one orange? And why is that one white? Why are there divergence in colors? And how is that created? And there is a place for them. There are other people who say, this flower is so inspiring and beautiful. I need to recreate it artistically. I need to paint it. I need to draw it. I need to sculpt it. And there is a place for them. There is a place for all of us. There are some that say, I just want to come out here and lay down in the field and just be. And there is a place for you too. There's a place for all of us. And whether we are more inclined to science or the humanities, there is a place for us, and together we create a fuller picture of what God has done. If we were all into humanities, we would have great artistic stuff, and then we wouldn't be able to figure out how to build our church. And if we were all science and no humanities, we would have some really amazing buildings, and they're not really sure how to decorate them. But together, Christianity has produced some of the most awe-inspiring, some of the most beautiful sacred and profound architecture in all the world. People travel the world that don't even believe in Jesus Christ just to see the buildings that are built in his honor. And there, when you walk in and you can feel the, the vastness of the space, you can see the glory in which it is decorated, and you are able to feel this presence whether you want to acknowledge what it is or not, you can feel the presence. And people have wandered into holy houses, sacred spaces for, for worship, and there they have encountered God. Because it has taken both those of us who are scientific-minded Christians and those of us who are humanities-minded Christians to come together to form these things. We have been empowered and equipped and sent forth to do it. 
One of the first commandments that God gives humanity after the creation, the first creation story in Genesis 1 is go, be fruitful and multiply, not stay and don't do anything. God says go forth, explore, have dominion. You can't have dominion over something if you don't know what it is. You have to know what it is. We were encouraged, equipped, and empowered to marvel at all of creation, what God's done. And God wants us to marvel at it. God wants us to go, how in the world did God do that? God wants us to look at the morning dawning sky and the transformation through its colors and go, how does that happen? And some of us are satisfied with the sun is rising and changing what the sky looks like. And some of us go, actually, light moves through spectrum. And when you start moving through spectrum and different layers of the atmosphere, you can actually see this color emerge. Actually, the color is all the same, but we just see different colors. At that point, I'm like, who? It's pretty. But I appreciate that for some people, the scientific understanding resonates with something deep within them, not just their mind, but their being. And it brings them to a place where they appreciate and go, that is the powerful God I serve. That is the God that I know, who knows me, who loves me, who redeems me, and who has created this incredible thing. And if we don't employ some method of science, then we don't get to really appreciate things. How many of us have actually given God credit? God is the original creator of leopard print. God creates things and wants us to marvel at them. Have you ever gone to an art exhibit and the artist is standing next to the piece just waiting for you to ask questions? Is this your art? What does it mean? Why did you use this color? Tell me the story. And the artist, the creator of the piece, wants you to be engaged with it, wants you to appreciate it, wants you to have some kind of response to it. And if you just walk by and go, I'm not allowed to ask questions, don't ask questions, don't ask questions, then the creator is hurt or even offended. And yet God wants us to ask the questions. God wants us to marvel. God wants us to talk about it. God wants us through the gift of prayer to ask questions about things. God, who is this? Why are we? What are we supposed to be? Who are you? All throughout the scripture, this is the purpose. The word of God is to convey who God is and who we are in relationship to God. And only it is by knowing these things that we can ask the question, God, what would you have me do? And God pushes God's people into this journey time and time again puts them into new environments, gives them new encounters with other people, encourages them to hear stories and respond and write their own stories. Jesus loves stories. They're called parables. And Jesus tells them all the time. And my suspicion is that what's not recorded in the scripture, probably for brevity's sake at this point, is that Jesus probably listened to more stories than he told. He was around at dinner parties. He was at weddings. And I've gone to a few dinner parties and I've gone to a few weddings and there's a lot of storytelling going. How did they meet? How did we get there? What's your story? Where are you from? What did you do for a living? These are questions that are designed to bring forth connection and relationship. And that's what God wants from us. And for some of us, if coming at that from a scientific way gets us closer to our creator, then amen. And if for some of us, it's about encountering God in people or in experiences, and it's less about figuring out the who, what, when, where, why, and how, then there's a place for us and amen to. Because together, we make a better church. Together, we make a fuller picture of who our God is. 
And in a few chapters, actually chapter 38, God is going to get sick of listening to Job and his friends go back and forth in what we would call arguing. And God shows up in a whirlwind, shows up in a natural form, which will take people a lot of time to figure out how that works. It's a lot of physics. And then once God shows up in the whirlwind, God says, you know what? Gird up your loins. Get ready, because now I have questions for you. And we're going to start with some questions about, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Where were you? Where were you when I created parameters for the oceans and told them you may go no further here? Where were you when I created these animals and populated the oceans and the seas and the land and the air? Where were you when I designed all the things that creep and crawl on the earth and the things that fly in the sky? Tell me if you know. God will keep asking questions over and over and over. And finally, Job and his friends realize they are well out of their league, that God knows things that they can't know. And maybe if God is this smart just about creation, maybe God understands things about suffering that we don't know. We may never understand, not on this side of the kingdom. But what God has shown us is not explicitly stated. But Job and his friends are asking questions. And if they keep asking questions, the book of Job tells us that God shows up. If you ask questions, if you're asking in your prayer life, if you're asking in your small groups, if you're asking in your homes, in your families, in your groups of friends, if you are asking questions, God will show up. Now, you might not like the answers, but God's going to show up. And God has things to tell us. And God wants us to ask and to see. So the next time somebody says, you can't ask that question, oh, yes, you can. Your response should be, have you read the book of Job? Yes, I can ask questions. Oh, yes, I can. And here's the other thing. It takes all of the book of Job for Job and his friends to learn this. But sometimes the smartest, most intelligent, most divine answer that we as human beings can offer is this. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know why we're doing this. I don't know why God did this. I don't know. Let's be honest. Don't lie and make up an answer. But let's answer the question. I don't know. But I know who does. And I know how to get in touch with him. And I know that we can figure out answers together. And if I'm not of scientific mind, I know that there are people who are, and we can ask them. And if there are people that can't figure out how to make this appeal to other people, then I know people of the humanitarian mind, and we can ask them. We are able to do things because God has given us a mind. God wants you to use your mind. Use your brain. Use what God has given you. God doesn't want mindless followers. God wants people who use everything at our disposal, all of our resources and our money, all of our mind and our body, all of our spirit, all of our passion, all of it. God wants us to bring everything everything to bear to build the kingdom here and when we say to one another within the church you can't ask that question we are doing a disservice to god because god tells us through the pure volume of scripture that there is no question you can't ask there is nothing that you can't ask there is nothing that you can't ponder that you can't consider there is nothing under all the heavens and beyond that God is not willing to engage with you on. And what an awesome truth that is. There is nothing off limits for God. Nothing. We serve a God who says there is nothing that you can say, do, think, or live out 
that you can't give forgiveness for. And if we start saying things are off limits, then we start to think, well, maybe there are things that God won't forgive. Maybe there are things, maybe there are people that God doesn't want. But because of the gift of our minds, Christians and believers throughout time have said, you know what? That doesn't sound right to me. Something isn't resonating with me. It doesn't sound right that we should exclude. It doesn't sound right that we should condemn. It doesn't sound right that we should obscure or that we should create obstacles so that people can't get to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Jesus was crucified up on a hill. He came down out of the tomb. He refused to stay where people couldn't get to him. He refused to allow even his most well-intentioned apostles to build a barrier so that people could not get to him. And sometimes in modern Christianity, especially here in America, the barrier we build is to tell people, don't use your mind. Don't think about it. Just feel it. Just do it. But instead, God wants us to use all of these things. There needs to be people who are thinking. There need to be people who are feeling. And there definitely needs to be more of us who are doing. We need to all be in ministry together. And those of us who want to rush right in and do, somebody needs to go, wait, let's think about this too. (laughs) And those of us who go, we're just going to think about it for about 10 years and then we'll decide whether we're going to do it. There needs to be somebody saying, "Um, Jesus is going to come back at some point. We might want to get to work. It takes all of us, all of us to make the kingdom manifest. And we cannot allow people to tell us that something is off limits because there is nothing off limits for grace. There is nothing off limits for God's power and ability. And there is no one off limits for Jesus Christ. And we know this. We know this because Christians have asked. And God has said, if you ask, you will receive. If you knock, that door will be open. And I am coming to you. That is our truth. It is not necessarily an empirical, objective truth, but it is definitely our truth. And every story, every word of Scripture is preparing us to receive that truth and to disseminate it in the world. And that is what we are called to do, to live out the science of our faith. And the glorious thing about the body of Christ is that there are people who have stood up and they offer that testimony. I am of the world of science and I am claimed by Jesus Christ. What a powerful testimony that is. And it makes us better because we recognize that. And there are certainly plenty of scientists throughout the history of humanity that were persecuted by the church. Shame on us. Shame on us. There have also been people who have dared to depict things that we didn't like. Oh, that humanitarian art form. We don't like the way you're drawing that. And we persecuted them too. Shame on us. Instead, maybe we would have painted and projected a more full picture of the gospel and of Jesus Christ and of the glory of God if we had allowed both to have a place in our world. Blessedly, we cannot kill what God wants to thrive. And so the testimony is here. So don't let people tell you that you can't, that it's, that it's a binary choice. Jesus or Darwin? I think Jesus made Darwin. Don't let people tell you. It's either creationism or it's evolution. You must pick a side. Don't let people tell you. It's either Christianity or it's science. And you can't serve two masters. 
I don't think science and Christianity are masters, first of all. I think they are a means by which to figure out who we serve. And that's what we're called to do. And if you can figure out through science that you serve Jesus Christ, hallelujah. And if you can figure out through song and through art and through writing and literature and cinema that you serve Jesus Christ, hallelujah. For most of us, I think it's a little bit of both. And that's a glorious thing too. So for all the ways in which God has equipped and empowered us and encouraged us, may we continue to empower, equip, and encourage other people to use their minds to uplift their spirits and to build the kingdom here. May it be so. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Thank you again for joining us for this week's podcast. We hope you found the message meaningful, and we invite you to join us in person as we gather for worship at Crozet United Methodist Church every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org to learn about ways you can connect with God and your neighbors through the ministries of Crozet UMC. Have a great week.